Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we have done it. We have reached the ultimate episode of our relationship with media and its evolution over the years. This is episode seven of that arc. And uh, when I started down this path, I was thinking it might be a three or four part series. And here we are at episode seven. So let's get right into it. Now, in the last episode, I talked about the development of the MP3 compression format, which would have an enormous impact on both technology and culture, as well as business, as it turns out. The MP3 format is a lossy format. That means you lose a bit of the information in the original file as you compress it down. And that means when you decompress it, when you expand it back to its regular size later on, you actually don't have the full file. Some of that information is just gone. Now, the goal of the MP3 compression format is to only cut information that doesn't affect the quality of the ultimate sound, but that depends not just on the compression algorithm, but also the sample rate and the bit depth that you select as you compress stuff, as you use the uh, the encoders. Typically, you can set these features and you can use you know more compression, which means you're going to have uh, files that are of a smaller size, they're easier to handle, but they also have more likelihood to have some artifacts and uh, distortion in them or clipping or other elements that indicate that, yeah, you really compress that file. Now, a few things helped make the MP3 and other compressed audio file formats an enormous success. They weren't huge successes right out of the gate, but it took a little time, and then once it it got to a certain level, they really took off. The first thing that helped was that internet download throughput was slowly on the rise, meaning it wouldn't take a full day to download a song or anything. Like back in the old days when we were all using dial-up and we had very slow modems, it took ages just to download a small file. You wouldn't even dream of trying to tackle something like a raw audio file. Even a compressed one would have taken quite some time. The second element that really helped was that hard drive storage space was also climbing. So you could fit more files onto your hard drive because the hard drives were getting higher in capacity. Uh, Some MP3 players that came along later on after the MP3 format had been settled uh, actually had physical hard drives in them. They had tiny hard drive platters that actually moved inside the uh, the the portable player I actually had a, a creative Zen player that was like that. And it was a bit of a brick. It was heavy and it was a little bulky, largely because it was housing a physical hard drive. Later on, most of these players would switch over to solid state drives. Those are faster, they're lighter, and you don't have to worry about physical moving components with those. The third factor that made a big impact on the MP3 success was that the compressed files worked well with both both of those first two factors. The first two things uh, complemented the MP3. The file sizes of the MP3s were smaller than the raw audio files, so they didn't take as much time to transfer over the internet, and they took up less hard drive space, which meant that consumers had a chance to carry around an entire music library on a portable device. Uh, You might be able to have a few CDs in your car, and thus have a selection of maybe a dozen different albums. 
but on a portable MP3 player of a sufficient hard drive size, you could have hundreds of songs on there. So it really changed the game that way. Then there were the sharing services like Napster and Kazaa and LimeWire and numerous others. These were the bane of the recording industry, and they led to some pretty high-profile draconian lawsuits that I'll talk about a bit later in this episode. The services enabled users to share copies of files with each other, and they very quickly became the trading grounds for copyrighted material, sometimes unreleased copyrighted material. So stuff was leaking on the internet before it could get officially published as CDs. So instead of going out and buying a CD and ripping it on a computer to put songs on an MP3 player or buying a song off an online store like iTunes, which came a little bit later, people were instead downloading client software to connect to -to peer-to-peer networks and to grab that stuff for free. And along the way, they risked pulling down some nasty computer viruses and other malware because not everything was what it claimed to be on those services. You might think, oh, there's the new Bruce Springsteen album. I'm just going to download it. And it turns out that it's a Trojan horse for some sort of malware that you're completely unaware of. It was not unusual in those days to download a file and then try to play it so you can listen to the music and nothing seems to happen. And you might think, oh, it's a corrupted file. The download didn't happen properly. It could also be that it was actually malware. So that was a risk you had to take. um, And hopefully you were at least aware of that risk if you were engaged in that behavior. Now, some people became obsessed with collecting music files. They established enormous digital music libraries of their own. Sometimes they'd even download stuff they never really planned to listen to just so that they could have it. And uh, people were purchasing fewer CDs And that was a huge blow to the recording industry. There were multiple reasons for that. And again, I'll talk about that a little bit more in depth later on. But this was a a scary thing for record labels because the profit margin for CDs was really good. You know, CDs were cheap to manufacture. You could sell them for a really good profit. And companies obviously did not want that cash cow to go away. So when they started seeing that trend on the decline, companies really freaked out. And there were a lot of different reasons that contributed to that decline, but the company seemed to really focus on piracy as being the one main uh, reason for that happening. Worse than that, companies started seeing those albums get leaked, like I said, before they could even publish them. And they were wondering, how is this happening? How can these songs that haven't even published, they haven't played on the radio, They shouldn't really be outside the control of the company. How are they getting out to get leaked onto these services? Uh, Because people were downloading the latest songs from artists days or sometimes even weeks before the album would actually drop. The New Yorker did a profile on someone responsible for thousands of leaks. He was not the only one, but this is a representation of what was going on. It was a guy named uh, Del Glover. He was working at a Polygram CD manufacturing facility in the Carolinas. And Glover claimed he never personally smuggled any of those production CDs out of the facility, but he had a network of employees who would do that for them, for him. So he would, you know, rely on these people to smuggle out brand new CDs that were being produced but not yet being sold. Uh, One of the ways they would do this is they would commonly produce more CDs than they actually needed for an order because sometimes, you know, you have irregular CDs that are pressed. There might be some uh, manufacturing error. Something is affecting the quality. 
Uh, and sometimes you would just end up with extras anyway. And those extras were always meant to go through a shredder so that the material could be destroyed and then recycled. But you could just secretly, you know, hide one of those CDs on your person while you're taking all the rest to the shredder because no one was keeping track of the shredded discs. So if you did it and you were careful and you didn't get caught, you could stand to gain from that. So Glover would take the smuggled discs home and then he would rip the music off of them using his computer and upload the files to a ringleader of a piracy ring who then made them available on various peer-to-peer networks. Well, first on centralized networks and later peer-to-peer networks. This also helps start the idea that the content on the internet is free. It's a it's an idea that's got a pretty strong hold on the average internet user's psyche this these days. This concept that if I if I go online, I should be able to get stuff for free. People got used to that idea. They didn't have to walk into a store and lay down cash for a purchase. Now, in some cases, artists or companies might allow people to listen to or even download some content for free. It actually becomes something they're welcoming. They might think of it as a type of marketing. But in other cases, people were just pirating the heck out of stuff. They were just copying it because they could, uh, not because it was allowed. And the thought of paying for content was on the decline. The revenue model for the web was largely ad-based, right? If you went to a website, chances are that website was making money by using web advertising. They were selling space on the web page that advertisers would uh, pay money to occupy for a certain amount of time. And uh, this was not ideal for content creators necessarily because, and, and for website operators too, because people were starting to develop what we largely would refer to as, as uh, ad blindness. People would stop paying attention to the fact that there even were ads. They're just paying attention to the content. That led to some pretty irritating uh, trends in advertising, things like pop-ups and pop-unders and ads with full sound that just start playing as soon as they load on your screen. Irritating stuff like that that would uh, decrease your enjoyment of the web experience. But it also meant that a lot of people would um, install ad blockers so that they could not have that experience and still get the content they wanted. The content wasn't technically free because it was being paid for by advertising, but the end user was not directly paying for the experience, right? It wasn't like it was behind a paywall. So for the user, it felt like everything is free. And when everything feels like it's free, it then feels like a huge imposition to be told, hey, uh, if you want access to this, you've got to pay for it. And so it kind of conditioned people to an expectation that content needs to be free. Um, That's a huge problem, Uh, not just for music, it's for web content in general. And uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later too. But this was also a shift away from owning a physical copy of a song or a movie or television show, as those would follow the same path. If you could get a digital version, and it was a good enough digital version of whatever it was you wanted, there wasn't much call for buying something that would take up physical space. There were still people who preferred having a physical copy, and there still are today. There are people who would much prefer to go out and get physical copies of movies, largely because it's a good way to guarantee you're getting the best uh, uh, experience for your money, and that uh, things like a a Blu-ray disc, like let's say you're going to get a 4K 
ultra high definition disc and uh, you want to watch it on a 4K television, you're probably going to have a better experience than watching a digital version that's gone through compression and then decompression. Uh, That still might be really good. It might be better than high definition, but it's probably not going to measure up to the physical copy. So there's some people who still demand that. They also might want things like the cover art or liner notes or special features, or they may just want something physical to relate to with the music or movies or television that they enjoyed. They might have a sort of a, a psychological attachment to that. And then there's the audiophile community. They were largely against digital files in general, compression in particular, and really lossy formats. They hated that idea because they were very passionate in arguing that that approach was decreasing the actual quality of the music itself. Now, generally speaking, you could tell the difference between a good analog recording played on a decent stereo system and a digital file of the same piece of music played on a comparable sound system, specifically a compressed digital file. The more extreme the compression, the easier it was to tell the difference between the two. And so there was a community of audiophiles who protested how the compressed format was ruining the beauty of the experience of listening to music. But for many people, including myself, the convenience factor mattered way more than the quality of the music. While the difference might be noticeable between the perfect sound system and a portable MP3 player, most people just wanted to be able to hear the songs they liked in an easy-to-carry format. And as long as the compression wasn't really ruining the song, it was fine. You know, it might not be the best quality. You might not get the the levels of bass or treble that you would get with a really good stereo system. But if the song sounds like the song in general, then that was good enough. Meanwhile, things would get worse for audiophiles because of a trend in music that was being affected by compression, a different type of compression. Online music forums were starting to erupt around the same time period with conversations about music being louder than it had been before that the actual recordings being pressed to CD were at a volume greater than previous generations of music. So if you put a CD in and you set the volume on your CD player at, let's say, 5 out of 10, and you're playing a a CD of older music, then it might be a comfortable listening experience. But then you put in a more recent album, and it would suddenly be too loud to listen to. You would have to adjust the volume. Well, compression was having a big effect on the quality of music. See, the conversation was really about the dynamic nature of sound and music. And most people refer to dynamic as a range of sounds and their loudness. So really kind of a a range of volume. Uh, A dynamic song, therefore, would have quiet components and loud components. And there should be a pretty decent range between the two. And ideally, you should be able to hear all of it based on the way the music is constructed and recorded. Now, Emmanuel Derrity actually did an analysis of music from the 1970s up through 2010 to see whether or not music as a whole really did get louder and less dynamic. He published the findings on the website soundonsound.com and found that, yeah, music did get louder. The dynamic question is actually a little more complicated. But he traced the trends in music, finding that as time went on, music recordings were getting louder. And 
that at the same time, the range between the peak loudness and the median loudness of the songs was decreasing. So in other words, in earlier music, you might get a few moments of loudness, but most of the time, the the um, median volume was lower. So you had a range there. In later songs, the peak wasn't necessarily much higher than the median. So the loudest sound was not that different from the median sound. And that meant there was less dynamic range, at least according to this volume approach. And it, and some people argued it led to a homogenous, noisy, less interesting sound overall. Drudy actually found there was more loudness range than people typically imagined in that more recent music, but it gets super technical. Now, the reason for that wasn't just that it was a change in taste for music, but that was part of it. It was also in the nature of compression and what people refer to as digital brick walls. Now, essentially, to get music that loud, you had to put a hard upper limit on the loudest noise because the CD could only replicate so loud of a noise before you'd start getting uh, distortion like clipping or other artifacts. But that compression would also mean that it would square off the peaks in sound. It would create a digital version of distortion that would only appear in the recorded version. If you were able to listen to the original uh, decompressed version, it would sound very, very different. So you could do that to create an effect on purpose, but a lot of people just found that it was having a a, uh, negative impact on the quality of sound overall. This, by the way, is not the same thing as MP3 compression. With this recording compression, we're talking about compressing the upper and lower limits of a sound's loudness. We're not talking about compressing a digital file size. Now, I mention this because you'll often hear music fans talk about how compression has had a negative impact on music. But they are frequently talking more about the production side of music and not necessarily on the end digital file format. But for the record, both processes can have a negative impact on the final quality of a sound. And the loudness wars were largely brought about because the CD form factor and the trend to push the limits of the levels of loudness that CDs and CD players could handle, it wasn't on the digital file side at all. But let's get back to those digital files. That's really what I was talking about in this episode anyway. The recording industry tried lots of different tactics to try and stop the flood of leaks and downloads as album sales began to decline. And the industry had been on a trend enjoying a decade of incredibly robust sales. As soon as the CD had premiered, it was starting to already gain momentum. It would overtake cassettes, and then it would eclipse previous sales figures of cassettes and vinyl doing gangbuster business for the recording industry. It was an, an, a great time to be the head of a recording label. But after that, once those heyday years had passed, the industry started looking at these declines, and it was a really harsh wake-up call to see those numbers go the other way. And the companies were not just going to take this lying down. Many tried various digital rights management strategies to protect the music under their labels. They tried to uh, protect CDs, the the famous one being Sony when it backfired on them. Uh, But there were others that tried different methods as well in an effort to limit how people could use digital files. But typically, that would just mean hackers would find the DRM and strip it out of the music files and share it anyway. The other big move that organizations like the Recording Industry Association of America, or RIAA, 
uh, that they took was uh, was legal action. And boy, howdy, did they go all out in that realm. The targets didn't just include services like Napster that enabled file sharing on a grand scale. They also included regular folks who were engaged in some illegal file sharing and some people who probably weren't, and the stakes were really high. I'll talk about that more in just a second, but first, let's take a quick break. The RIAA sued Napster in December 1999. The service had only gone live in June of 1999, so the RIAA did not waste time about this. And like many legal processes, this one took a long time to reconcile. And it was tricky because the DMCA did establish that service providers are not responsible for how their customers use their service, as long as the service itself is in fact legal and peer-to-peer distribution is a perfectly legal process. The problem wasn't with the method necessarily, but the content that users were uploading and sharing. It's it's legal to use peer-to-peer uh, networks to distribute files. That's their purpose. It's not legal to use peer-to-peer to distribute files without the authorization of the owner of the intellectual property. To use an analogy, it's perfectly legal to use the road system to transport stuff from one city to another. We do it all the time. That's what the road system is for. But it is illegal to smuggle contraband. However, if someone were caught smuggling, the law wouldn't go after the Federal Highway Administration in the United States because it's not the FHWA's fault that someone was transporting illegal goods using the highways that the agency actually oversees. The same concept was meant to apply to online providers. But there was a caveat. The providers had to be willing and able to take action against people who were using the services illegally. If a copyright holder, such as a music label, were to contact a service like Napster, that service was supposed to help clamp down on illegal behaviors. And in return, the service would receive the protection of safe harbor. So part of the lawsuit was alleging that Napster was willfully turning a blind eye to illegal behavior on the service. Now, for the record, Napster did try to comply with this, but they were only able to demonstrate that their their uh, ability to prevent illegal file sharing was 99.4% effective. And the prosecution argued that that wasn't good enough. It had to be 100% effective, which led some people to say, this isn't actually an attack on Napster. This is an attack on peer-to-peer file sharing as a strategy in the first place. Um, And so it led to a pretty ugly fight. The lawsuit also led to Napster shutting down its existing service in 2001. Uh, The lawsuit kept on going at that point. The following year, a judge and an appeals court both found that Napster was liable for numerous copyright violations. Uh, In separate lawsuits with artists like Dr. Dre and Metallica, Napster would settle out of court, paying handsomely to do so. And uh, Napster would go bankrupt. They would eventually reemerge in a very different format as an online music store, Uh, It was not really the same entity as the original company um, that, like I said, that company had gone bankrupt. Another company came in and bought up all the assets. 
Uh, and in fact, there's actually been a couple of different music-related services called Napster since the original shutdown. And Napster wasn't the only entity the RIAA and music artists went after. As I mentioned earlier, individuals who use these services were also targeted. Um, and as my colleague Ben Bolin might say, here's where it gets crazy. Because the industry went thermonuclear against people. And not only did it hurt a lot of people, it didn't actually achieve the goal that the industry had set out to do, which was essentially to scare off pirates so that they wouldn't copy and share music files. As it turned out, the actions didn't curtail that behavior at all. So to go into all the different lawsuits would take a few episodes all by itself. So I'm just going to hit a few highlights, or you might want to call them lowlights. Now, I'm pulling a lot of this information from a white paper that was published in 2008 by the Electronic Frontier Foundation titled RIAA versus The People Five Years Later. In April 2003, the RIAA sued four college students. The students would ultimately settle out of court, not necessarily because they felt they had done something wrong or illegal, but because going into the court system would be very expensive, much more expensive. Even if they won the fight, they might end up having to spend way more money in legal fees than if they settled out of court. And in at least one of those cases, the amount of the settlement was exactly the same as the amount the student happened to have in his bank account, and it effectively wiped out his college fund. The reaction against the RIAA was mostly negative, with many people saying that this was an overstep, that it was being far too cruel in its pursuit of pirates and the the payments, the, the penalties people were facing were far greater than what was justified. On September 8th, 2003, the RIAA would sue 261 Americans alleging that those people were illegally sharing music on peer-to-peer -peer networks. And as many have written in the years since, it was a particularly aggressive and confrontational and ultimately stupid move. After all, the industry was attacking music fans. The very consumers that supported the industry were the ones that the RIAA were going after. So in hindsight, it seems pretty clear that this move would alienate a lot of people, even those who had never illegally downloaded a song. An industry that sues its own customers is not likely to see a sales jump as a result. That's not how you build customer loyalty. And not only was it aggressive and ineffective, it was a faulty process. The RIAA was collecting IP addresses by joining the same file sharing services that pirates were using and then searching for people who were uploading music that was in the represented record labels directories. Uh, in the RIAA, but an IP address doesn't automatically tell you the physical address of a device. To get that information, the RIAA actually had to go after internet service providers, or ISPs. So the ISPs have an incentive to withhold that personal information of their customers because the handing over customer data is a great way to, to lose your customer's confidence. The RIAA leveraged the rules of the DMCA to force the hands of the internet service providers. If the ISPs didn't comply, they wouldn't be protected under the rules of the DMCA. Now, at first, the RIAA tried to subpoena ISP customers' uh, names and, and addresses from the ISPs just with allegations of copyright infringement. So in other words, this wasn't as the result of a lawsuit 
or even they didn't even present evidence to support their claims. They said, we suspect the person using this IP address is committing piracy. We want their name and address. So they weren't coming forward with any stronger uh, uh, request than that. That tactic ultimately failed as various public interest groups and the EFF challenged that practice in court. And the court agreed saying, no, you need more than just an allegation to get the hold of that information. There was a period though when the court was still deciding this where the practice was effectively legal or at least it wasn't illegal. And in that period, the RIAA issued 1,500 subpoenas to various ISPs. Now, some of those 261 people that the IRA uh, sued in September 2003 were probably fairly active in copyright infringement. They may very well have been the appropriate people to go after, at least from the perspective of these people were actively committing this infringing uh, behavior. But there were some on that list who won a lot of sympathy from the public, like Brianna Lahara. She was 12 years old. And the RIAA came after her like she was some sort of evil super genius. She was living in a public housing development in New York City. And her mom was a a single mother raising this kid, and they were targeted by this initial blast of lawsuits. And her only real option was to sell the case out of court because there was no way she could afford going to court and defending herself. That settlement would include a $2,000 fine and the requirement that she apologize publicly. So here's the thing. Turns out having a massive multi-billion dollar conglomerate of companies come after and force a young poor girl to apologize publicly isn't the best PR movement in the world. It seemed pretty clear that Lahara wasn't some sort of existential threat to the RIAA, and this was a real abuse of the legal system. And then there were all the people who were targeted who clearly had nothing to do with illegal downloads. Sarah Ward was one of those people. She was accused of using Kazaa to download hardcore rap music. But this grandmother probably didn't do that, seeing as how the only computer she owned was a Mac computer, and Kazaa was only compatible with Windows machines. She wasn't apparently running a virtual Windows machine on her computer, so chances are she was not the right person. The RIAA did eventually withdraw the lawsuit, but did not apologize for making that mistake. And it wasn't the only mistake. The list of people that was sued by the RIAA also included a family in Georgia that not only didn't have an internet connection, they didn't have a computer at all. There was no way for them to commit the crime that RIAA accused them of. There were even people on that list who were actually deceased. So clearly the RIAA was using a very wide, very inaccurate net to try and catch a few big fish as a message to pirates everywhere. And the 261 lawsuits were just the beginning. Over the course of several years, nearly 30,000 Americans were targeted by the RIAA in an effort to create an environment that would discourage illegal file sharing. So what did that accomplish? Well, mostly, they made the RIAA look like a vicious, uncaring group of greedy corporate jerks who were willing to financially ruin the lives of people who were already vulnerable in an effort to secure their own bottom line. So it didn't win them a whole lot of goodwill. And piracy continued 
unabated. And there's no big shock there. We've seen time and time again that more extreme punishments do not discourage crime. But for some reason, we keep trying that approach. Anyway, while the industries were able to shut down services, you know, they were able to to target the actual services and not necessarily the users, other services would pop up. And some were operating in foreign countries, which made it more difficult for the RIAA to go after them because they were outside the jurisdiction of the United States legal system. It would lead to the industry lobbying for new legislation in the U.S. to force ISPs to block access to those services that were outside the U.S., But I've covered some of those efforts in previous episodes of Tech Stuff. And as I mentioned before, the RIAA wasn't helped by claiming piracy has a demonstrable, calculable effect on diminished sales. Because it's impossible to equate every download as a lost sale. It's quite possible that the person who illegally downloaded a file would have never purchased an album or song otherwise. It's just as possible that after they downloaded it, they would go out and buy the song legally. There were people who did that too. They might just download it to listen to it to determine whether or not they wanted to go buy the album. So it worked both ways. There was no way to say a, a any single pirated uh, instance would lead to a loss in revenue. So the justification the RIAA was using when it was deciding what damages it should be receiving from people was completely unjustifiable. It was based on faulty logic. You can't say, you owe me X dollars because you cost me X dollars when you can't be sure that that's the case. So it was a huge issue. Ultimately, the music labels that fund the RIAA began to withdraw their funding. And this was for a lot of different reasons, but one of them was that the country was entering a recession, and that, coupled with the already established trend of lower record sales, was starting to put the squeeze on record label company budgets. And there was the possibility that the RIAA would just dissolve completely due to lack of funding. So the industry organization stopped pursuing lawsuits, not because it suddenly had a change of heart and said, oh, you know what? We've been real jerks about this. Instead, they stopped it because they ran out of cash to keep doing it. They did maintain more lawsuits against the services, but they stopped going after people. Now, let me be clear. I don't think theft is good. I don't think it's a good thing to share copyright material without authorization. I do think that artists should be compensated for their work, And that if you want to access something that's behind a paywall, you should either pay for that access or you just do without. You you don't work your way around it. You don't try and get to the content without paying for it. Otherwise, if you do that, then you have removed the monetary incentive to create something. And there are creative types who want to create no matter what, you know, but most of them also want to make a living. They have to pay bills, have to be able to eat. So they need to earn money. And it's not really fair to ask someone who is making the stuff you love, do it for free, and then supplement that somehow through numerous other jobs so that they can make a living. So I understand where the disconnect is because it's really easy to look at mega successful artists and say, well, that person's rich. You know, they've got a They've got multiple houses. They're always in the headlines for having these extravagant parties and stuff. So stealing music doesn't hurt them. And that's probably true for those folks. But there are a lot of creators out there who are doing what they love and they're either barely scraping by or they're not even able to live off of that art. So the attitude is ultimately really harmful to those artists. Now, that being said, 
the RIAA wasn't exactly looking out for the artists. So they're not the good guys in this either. That really wasn't part of their equation. The RIAA was looking out for the record labels. And record labels make their money by exploiting artists. Now, that's a word with negative connotation. It doesn't necessarily have to be negative. It doesn't necessarily mean an unfair exploitation. But record companies frequently did unfairly exploit artists. So if the artists create the music and the record labels produce it, publish it, market it, promote it, arrange for distribution, all that kind of stuff, you see where there's this relationship there where if the artists didn't go through a label, they'd have to do all of that on their own. And that's hard. They don't necessarily have the infrastructure to deal with that and do it themselves. And the record labels handle all that. So you understand why the record labels deserve a cut. But The record labels had most of the power in most of those situations. Unless an artist got so popular that it was a detriment to the record label if they lost that artist and the artist had enough leverage to negotiate a really good deal for themselves. Most artists weren't in that category. So while the RIAA was going after all these file-sharing entities and the people using them in the name of preserving copyright – The money the RIAA was actually getting from those settlements uh, didn't make its way to the artists whose work was being freely exchanged. So you had artists who were like, my music's being shared for free, and I know you're getting money from settlements, but I'm not seeing any of that cash. So the people downloading music were engaged in harmful behavior. The RIAA engaged in devastatingly harmful behavior, and artists were caught in the middle and were starting to get really frustrated. Now, some of them didn't see the harm in file sharing, and they genuinely wanted as many people as possible to hear their work. So they were in favor of this. They thought, oh, well, this is disrupting the industry. The industry is filled with corruption. I'm cool with it. Uh, But some, such as Metallica, saw piracy as a direct threat to their livelihood. They said, How are we supposed to sell our music online if the guy next to us is giving it away for free? No one's going to buy from us. They can just get the songs for free right next door uh, from an internet perspective. Most artists fell somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. You know, they weren't necessarily as extreme as Metallica, but not as uh, lackadaisical as those who were like, let's disrupt the system. And they weren't getting much help either way. But while the record labels were worried that piracy was going to be the end of them, another shift was coming that would change things up. It was an approach that would dramatically shift behaviors and do away with the idea of owning copies of music in the first place. It would be streaming services, which I'll talk about more in just a second right after we take this break. All right, so year after year, The music industry was facing huge cutbacks due to flagging revenues. And it's hard to feel much sympathy, if I'm being really honest, because the industry was also known for not just being insanely profitable for many years, but also for a rather hedonistic approach to business. There are legendary stories about parties and drug use and lavish offices for record label executives and crazy bonuses that they enjoyed, mostly at the expense of the musicians who were creating the stuff the record labels were selling. 
And there were some artists who likewise enjoyed comparable lifestyles, but for every Madonna, you had hundreds of artists who were making maybe a decent living, but they were not, not getting rich, or some people who weren't even able to get by even as being a signed artist with a record label. So generally speaking, artists weren't being paid anything until an album published, and then they would get some money. And in order to make serious money, to really make back enough money to justify the amount of time you spent recording the album, the album's sales had to do really, really well. Then the artist would get royalties, which are a percentage of each sale. And I, I think I need to give you a quick word on how royalties typically work so you understand how this model tends to, to work in the entertainment business. So in the negotiation phase, an artist and a label or a publisher come to an agreement. And that agreement typically includes a guaranteed payment on delivery or publication of content. So in this case, we're talking about the uh, an album dropping. So the artist comes up to the record label and they say, all right, when the album drops, the record label is going to pay the artist $50,000. That's a decent chunk of change. 50 grand is that's nothing to sneeze at, but it's not going to make anyone rich, right? It's not going to make them shop for a brand new house in Beverly Hills or anything. Now, along with that negotiation is the royalty rate. So let's just say for the purposes of an example that the rate is five cents per copy sold. Now, does that mean when the first copy of the album is purchased that the artist gets a shiny new nickel? No, because that nickel typically actually goes to pay off the $50,000 that the publisher initially paid the artist. So, in other words, you have to pay off that $50,000 guaranteed payment before you start accumulating royalties after that. And there are 1 million nickels in $50,000. So, the record label would need to sell a million copies of the album before the artist would start to see any money in royalties. And then, from that point forward, they would get a nickel off of every sale. So, if an album does really, really well and sells, sells millions and millions of copies, an artist can make some serious cash through royalties. And as long as the album is in print, the potential to earn those royalties continues. You know, as long as the album is still available to purchase as new, then you could still be making money off a classic album or a remaster years after you first publish it, depending upon the contract negotiations you went through before. But if the album only receives modest sales, then the artist won't get any royalties at all. Like if they don't sell a million copies, they never pay off that 50 grand. However, they also don't have to pay back the difference to the publisher. It's not like, oh, well, we only sold $30,000 worth of the album. If we look at your royalty rate, you don't have to return 20 grand. You keep the 50,000. After CD sales started to decline in 2000, the record label companies began to face some pretty harsh realities. Things got worse year after year. They had to start laying off employees. It was a very drastic change from the days where it looked like there was no end in sight to all the parties and all the drugs and all the bad behaviors. Um, I never occupied that world, so I don't know if all of that behavior stopped once things started getting more real for the record labels or if they just kept doing it in the hopes that maybe that would help ease the pain. I wasn't there, so I don't know. But the years from 2000 to 2010 were really, really rough on the industry in general. Now, in 2008, the streaming service Spotify launched, and it would become one of the most important players in the streaming 
game. Now, at the time, it wasn't seen as the savior of the music industry, but things have changed since then. The streaming model pays record labels a royalty fee per stream, and it's typically a fraction of a fraction of a penny per stream. So let's say a a play of a recording is a stream. Now, according to a survey by Digital Music News, in 2018, the royalty rate ranged from $0.00397 that would be on Spotify, $2.00783 on Apple Music. And it's not a one-size-fits-all rate. Record labels could negotiate those rates on behalf of artists, and influential artists sometimes have the clout to demand that their work remain off the services entirely if they think the royalty rates are too low. Lots of artists have done this. Adele, for example, um, they've said, no, I'm not going to allow my music to be on those services because the royalty fee they're paying is far too low. Uh, A lot of artists, however, don't have that clout, and they don't really have any option. But what became really clear later on was that these tiny fractions of a penny really do add up when you start looking at them collectively. And the big reason for that is it's not a one-time occurrence per customer. So the profit margins on CDs were great, and the royalties were more profitable per sale at first glance. But when you go out to buy a CD as a customer, you buy it just the one time. You aren't going to go buy a new copy of the same CD every time you want to listen to the CD. You just listen to the one you've got. So CD sales had a natural curve to them. It would peak, often right around release, or if a single from the album got a lot of radio play, and then sales would drop off gradually. But with streaming, a payment goes through with every stream. So every time a person listens to the same song, it triggers a payment, a royalty payment. So if you put a song on repeat, let's say that you've got a song that you particularly like and it's just stuck in your head and you gotta, you got to listen to it like 20 times in a row. This happens to me all the time. Well, that's actually 20 royalty payments that end up going to that record label and to that artist. Uh, a portion of it goes to the artist. So... While the initial amount is less than what you would get with a CD sale, you do it way more frequently because it's every time you listen to it, not just every time you purchase it. So record labels began to shift to support that model once the economic realities became clear and streaming gradually grew to become a more prominent component in revenue. Now, it also meant that some artists that might have trouble getting traction in the world of CDs started finding sustainable success through streaming. So it might be an artist that you know, maybe they'd only sell a a couple thousand albums in the traditional way, but people would discover them online and they would get very popular that way. Now people who usually would be struggling and be unable to live just off of their music might even be able to make a career out of it. They, again, might not be getting rich, but they might be making a comfortable living. Now, at the same time, the streaming services themselves were actually struggling to become profitable. They were operating, they were popular, they just weren't making a lot of money. There was clearly a business there, so there were a lot of investors who were willing to support these services with the thought that eventually they would turn a profit. People wanted to listen to music, record labels were willing to play ball in return for those royalties, and at least some artists were totally on board or powerless if they didn't have the influence. But making money as the service 
was a bit of a challenge. It wasn't until very recently that Spotify posted a profitable quarter from revenue. They did have one profitable quarter earlier, but that was due to a tax windfall, and you can't build a business off of that. That's almost like a one-off event. But they did have a profitable quarter recently, so they were able to show that maybe now it's actually a revenue model that works. These services typically generate revenue through ad-supported material. They sell advertising time on their services. Uh, or they might also offer subscription plans to customers. They might do both. So a typical service could have a free tier in which you can listen to music, but you might have limited features and you would have commercials play between every few songs. Uh, or you might have a selection of subscription tiers that might be ad-free. They could include other features like being able to listen to the same song more than once, um, that sort of thing. And many also offer digital stores where if you want, you can purchase songs and download them kind of like in the old days or like on iTunes or something like that. Um, or you could have a limited caching feature that allows for offline listening. Now, this model caught on with the public as well. And there are several streaming services that you can subscribe to. In the interest of full disclosure, iHeartMedia has an app that they use where you can listen to streaming music. And they talk about how their approach is different from, say, Spotify, and that it's all about curating a an experience. And it becomes a kind of a... Uh, a collaborative effort between the service and the listener. And then other services are more about on-demand listening. So there are very different approaches here, but they're both geared toward uh, having people be able to access music through streaming as opposed to downloading. So Pandora is another example. They select music for you based on an algorithm and some guidance from the individual users. You might give it a specific song that you like, and it will go out and seek other songs that it determines are similar to that one and serve them up to you. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. And there are rules that these companies typically have to follow. Uh, those are rules that are set by recording labels and broadcast companies. And it's been a challenge for many of those companies to make the business actually earn money, and many would exist primarily off of repeated rounds of funding campaigns. And while I focused on the music industry in this episode, we've seen the same thing happen with media like film and television. It took a little longer for those to really have that same experience, largely because the file sizes are typically much, much bigger than with music files. And so the limitations of technology gave them a bit more breathing space than the recording industry had. But services like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, uh, Disney's upcoming streaming service, and more provide users with on-demand digital streaming of films and TV shows that belong in the libraries of those services. The film and TV industries tried working with TV manufacturers to push for advancements like ultra-high definition, high dynamic range content. Even 3D systems was an effort to help boost sales both of hardware and of content and just increase revenues. Much of that has had limited success. Uh, in the case of 3D, it was pretty much a flop. And we've seen cable subscriptions on the decline. Streaming services have been doing pretty well. So well, in fact, that now these distribution companies are also production companies. You know, a decade ago, it would seem 
odd to suggest a company like Netflix would be able to go toe-to-toe with established older media companies to produce award-winning content. And yet that's happened several times in the last few years. Today, we have a culture of cord cutters who are canceling cable subscriptions in favor of online delivery. You have cord nevers. Those are people who never had a subscription to pay TV. In the first place, they've only received things either over the air or online. And this trend hasn't been so large as to necessitate a complete change in the entertainment industry, but it could be the beginning of another very large disruption. So if the streaming model continues to grow or at least hold steady while cable subscriptions continue to fall, we might see a drastic change in television and film production. Now, we're seeing an increased emphasis on huge tentpole blockbusters in film, you know, like the vast majority of them are coming from a single movie studio, that being the Walt Disney Company, which owns not just all the Disney IP, but Star Wars and Marvel, and they just had the acquisition of Fox as well. There's still a call for independent films, but many of those have sought new ways to reach audiences. Some have been released both in theaters and on online channels uh, and available for streaming, sometimes for a small fee, but at the same time when it's out in theaters. Others have skipped cinema distribution entirely and struck deals with companies like Netflix to get distribution that way. And as we head toward a future in which pay TV is having this this existential crisis, we are left with the question, are we going to see a future where pay TV goes away and movie theaters are only for showing Disney films and everything else reaches us on one of a dozen streaming services? Or... Will it be possible that the proliferation of all these different services, each of which has its own selection of exclusive content and features, will ultimately frustrate consumers who just want access to all the things they like in one place? I know a lot of people who said, I quit cable because I thought it was too expensive and it was giving me too much of the stuff that I don't care about and not enough of the stuff I do care about. But now there are so many different streaming services and no one has everything that in order for me to get all the stuff I want, I have to subscribe to half a dozen streaming services, which doesn't seem like it's any better than one single cable service. So there's still a lot of frustration out there. Uh, These are questions that we can't answer yet. We don't know how it's all going to turn out. So I'll likely have to do more episodes in this vein in the future. But for now, it's time to leave off and move on to other topics. We are done talking about the evolution of entertainment media and how that has changed our consumption. We have gotten to the point now where a lot of people don't bother owning music anymore. Instead, they will pay for a subscription to or listen to ads in return for access to a uh, a service that serves up music on demand in streaming format and not purchase it at all. I mean, I know a lot of people who the way they listen to music is they just start a YouTube playlist and they listen to it that way. Uh, so it's it's a very different world from the world of vinyl and and CDs or, or even older if we want to go with like, you know, wax cylinders. So yeah, interesting, interesting story, but we're going to now move on to other topics. So look forward to something totally different in the next episode. And if you guys want to reach out with your own suggestions, you can email me. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Pop on over to techstuffpodcast.com. That's our website where we have an archive of all of our previous episodes plus access to our social media accounts over on Facebook and Twitter. There's also a link there to our online store. Remember, every purchase you make there goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. 
Next Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 